Let me encourage you to turn in the book of Daniel, chapter 8, as we continue our series in this glorious book. You'll notice since last week we've come into the uh, particularly cartoon part of this book. It's all in one sense a cartoon. That's been one of my points. But we come today into a particularly cartoony section, as we did last week. We come to part two, the second half of the book of Daniel. The first half of Daniel is all about history. And the second half of Daniel is the same history. But looking at it from God's angle, looking at it from heaven's angle. So let's come now and hear the, uh, let's not just hear, but try to see this vision of Daniel in chapter eight. We'll read the whole of the chapter. You can't really read it without one, uh, without reading the whole. So let's come to it. Let's hear the word of Daniel. Let's hear the word of Almighty God. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 1, Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision. And when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and look, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, look, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes, he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground. And it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? The transgression that makes desolate. And the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And look, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, 
I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, look, I'll make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. That's in the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask the blessing upon the preaching and the hearing and the understanding of his word. Lord, show us, show us your word, show us your son, show us the safety we have in you, and show us your power. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've already mentioned, of course, that Daniel is a cartoon book, that really, if you want to understand Daniel rightly, you need to start reading more comic books. And we have here one of the comics, we have here one of the cartoons, we have one of the pictures of Daniel. Daniel chapter 8, because we're now in the half of the book that is strange. You look at the first verse here and you see the time reference, the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Well, when is that? If you've been tracking with us, that's back in time. So the Bible is not necessarily a history book in the way we think of history. It's not always chronological. Well, the first six chapters were, but not anymore. Last chapter, last time, chapter 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar. So we are two years on from that event, but we're back in time. Why is Daniel doing this? What Daniel is doing is showing us more than history. This is the point I made at the very beginning. What Daniel is doing is not simply showing us history. That's boring, in a sense. What he, what he is doing is showing us theology. He is showing us a God's eye view of history. Not from our view anymore, but behind the scenes of history, he is taking us behind the curtain to understand God at work in all the mysteries of our experience. And there are two very simple keys. I'll get into you now. There are two very simple keys to reading a book like Daniel well. A lot of folks don't use these two keys. And by the way, these two keys can also be applied to the book of Revelation. And the fact that folks don't use them there either is another issue. Two very simple keys. First key, use your eyes. Use your eyes. This is not a talk. This is not a word from the Lord. It is a vision. It appeared to Daniel. 
after the one that appeared to him at the first. I'm just reading the first couple of verses. I saw in the vision when I saw. I saw in the vision. Verse 3. I raised my eyes and I saw and looked around. You see all that language? It's seeing. It's not hearing. He did not hear a voice speak. Well, yes, he heard voices, but, but he was seeing. The, the, the focus is on the eyes. You have to use your eyes. When we, to, when we come to read Daniel and Revelation and parts of Ezekiel, when we come to read apocalyptic literature, we have to understand this is not a talk. It's not a message. It's not a presentation in, a, in the same way that the rest of the Bible is. It's a cartoon. It's a tapestry. If you don't like cartoons, think of it this way. It's a piece of art that we're meant to look at. That's why, boys and girls, you probably read this chapter better than Pastor John. That's why boys and girls who are young probably read this chapter more easily than adults. Because children are used to picture books. Children are used to exercising their imagination. We're not. We're grown-ups. We're used to speaking. Abstract ideas. Communicating with our mouths. Listening with our ears. But to understand Daniel rightly, we have to use our eyes. We have to use our imagination. We have to use the key of our sight. So, for example, one thing we'll look at this, this evening is this, to show us that these pictures are meant to convey power. Dark power. Dark evil power. But we'll get to that in due time. That's the first key. Use your eyes. Second key. Second key is like it. Use your mind. Use your eyes and use your mind. This is verse 15. When I, Daniel, when I'd seen the vision, I used my eyes. What did I do? I sought to understand it. I tried to understand it. I wanted to understand it. He's asking for God's help to unravel the mysterious significance. And the Lord provides insight. The Lord provides Gabriel into these nightmarish images. That is, he uses his eyes and he uses his mind. Why is it so important to Daniel? I mean, why did God give this chapter at this time? Why is the vision given in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign? And there's a bit of debate. You know, is it 570? Is it this time? It's in the 500s, okay? That's all that matters for our purposes. The setting is what matters. Babylon is rising. Oh, Babylon has risen, and now Babylon is falling. Persia, the new kid on the block, is fixing to rise. We've heard this story before because it is Daniel chapter 5. That's the history time when this was happening. But Daniel is given a vision of the future. He's given a vision of the future after he is going to be dead. Why is he given a vision of the future? about Persia and Greece and Alexander the Great. We'll get into all that in a second. But why is he given a vision of the future hundreds of years down the line? He's not going to be there. Because he's in a moment in his day when there are rising nations and falling nations. He's in a moment in his day. God's people are in a moment in his day where there is crisis, where there are wars, where there is chaos, where there is social strife, where there are ethnic changes, where there's economic depression and fluctuation, where there is political turmoil. And he needs to grasp, and God's people under him need to grasp, and maybe even God's people today need to grasp that you and I 
like Daniel, are always in the middle of chaos. You and I are always in the middle of rising and falling nations. You and I are always in the middle of strife. And so is God. God's not surprised by it. See, chapter 7 and chapter 8 go together. Chapter 7 was the big picture. It's like the Genesis 1 of Daniel. Now chapter 8, we're zooming in to just a a, a hundred-year period of history, basically. We're zooming in to maybe a couple of hundred years of history. It's a narrow view of the the same, the, the, the next period of time for Daniel. God is showing Daniel, here's the next big world war. Here's the next big crisis, the coming of Persia, the rise of Cyrus the Ram, and then the next great empire, the Greeks, the goat under Alexander the Great. He's not giving Daniel in this chapter all of history. He's giving him a slice of it. He's not giving him the whole statue in chapter two. He's not giving him all four beasts. He's giving them a couple of the beasts. He's giving him this ram. He's giving them this goat, this shaggy goat, verse 5. This, this goat that comes from the west. He doesn't touch the ground. This goat, Alexander the Great, is this mighty original horn, a conspicuous horn. Verse 5. He, the story is told that Alexander comes to power with about 35,000 men against hundreds of thousands of Persian soldiers. He swept them all before him. A terrifying vision. The story is told that at the end of his conquest, Alexander wept because there were no more worlds for him to conquer. That's romantic, of course. That's, that gets all the uh, uh, young boys really uh, passionate for, for victory and fighting. But God's point in giving this vision is to show Daniel and to show his people that even mighty Alexander will die. Infamously, at a very young age in Babylon, the scholars still don't even know why he died, how he died. They speculate. Young age, he's cut off. See, here's the message. Here's the first lesson from the vision. Even in fear, God does not let slip the reign of history. Even in strife, even in confusion, God does not let the ship of history slip from the docks unmoored. He is on the throne still. He is in control despite appearances. Isn't that what you tell each other? Isn't that what you tell your friends when they're going through a hard time? You say, don't trust appearances. Isn't that what you tell your kids? Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't trust appearances. Look to the heart. We say that to people, don't we? We say, oh, look beyond the surface. Don't make it a surface analysis. Look to what they're like on the inside. And yet the news comes on or yet the the, the stocks go down, or yet the, the budget isn't working, or yet the doctor comes with a note, and you are so quick. We are so quick to suddenly trust appearances. It looks bad. Suddenly, we are very quick to trust the surface-level appearance. And God is saying to you, he's saying, don't trust. Don't make the mistake of getting fretting and worried about the appearance of history, whether it's a goat, whether it's a ram. Don't get worried about the rising and falling of a nation or the rising and falling of your own little nation, your own little home, your own little life, because my sovereign hand rests upon it. That's the first reality that this cartoon is showing us, that there are big beasts and they're fighting. And right in the middle, God still is in control. Second lesson from the picture here that Daniel has to learn 
he has to learn the dark reality of the powers of evil, the dark reality of evil beast. This is the goat and the four horns and the other horn. This is a vision of the shaggy goat. And we see in verse 8, the goat that is Greece, the goat becomes great. And yet this mighty horn, Alexander, is broken. And there's four other horns that come towards the four winds of heaven. These are the successor kingdom to Alexander. But the main focus of the vision, the main focus of Daniel 8, is not on any of that stuff. It's, it's fascinating here, by the way. This is a pure side note. There are tons of books written about Alexander the Great. He's one of the major figures in ancient history. He's a really important guy. And yet the Bible spends a lot more time talking about a relatively insignificant figure. Relatively insignificant. This little horn. Verse 9. Look there. Out of one of these four horns comes a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the beautiful, towards the glorious land. Why is there the focus on the little horn, this bold-faced or stern-faced king? Why is there the focus on this individual? The answer is this little horn, this little king is growing and focused and centered on and attacking God's people. Alexander the Great was way more important in, in human history. But he didn't attack God's people. This guy did. This little horn. There's no doubt all the historians agree, all the scholars agree. There's no doubt. It's very obvious who this guy is. He's, he's the ruler, the Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the destroyer in the days of the Maccabees. If you read the apocryphal books, first, second Maccabees, they talk about this guy. I think Handel has, a, has an oratorio about, that mentions Judas Maccabeus. The hammer. It was about this guy, this king. You know what he did? He, he went to the city of Jerusalem. He went to the temple. He grabbed a pig, unclean animal, and he deliberately offered up a pig on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. He deliberately committed sacrilege to the Jews, and he put up an object. Some scholars say it's a meteorite. I don't know. He put up an object in the place of God's house. He put up an object in the temple, an idol. And also, by the way, he killed about 40,000 Jews, slaughtering them in the streets of Jerusalem. He was hell-bent on the destruction of God's people, of God's chosen. He is a picture of what the Bible calls Antichrist. John tells us there have been many Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes, this horn, this little horn, was one of those. It's instructive for Daniel. Daniel was given this vision so that he could pray in advance. We are given the vision. This is instructive for us because you get a flavor of what evil is like. You get a flavor, a teaser, a trailer, a preview of the spirit of Antichrist that John says continues to be manifest in today's world. So what does this anti-Jesus spirit look like? Well, I think we see it uh, beginning in verse 23. He's a king of bold face. It's an interesting way of talking about things. Uh, maybe literally a stern face. Either way, this guy thinks he's amazing. The first anti-Christ spirit, 
The first thing about it is that it exalts itself. We saw it this morning in Philippians. What is so hard to get rid of in the Christian life? Self-centeredness. He exalts himself. And second, what does he do? Verse 24, he shall cause fearful destruction. The spirit of Antichrist destroys others. It does not build up, it tears down. Third, he is cunning. Verse 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. He is cunning and deceitful. That is, success is more important to this individual. Success is more important to Satan. Success is more important to those who are against Jesus than the truth. Cunning and deceitful to destroy, to exalt self. Fourth, what are the actions of this figure? It's in verse 11, back in the vision. The regular burnt offering is taken away. The place of the sanctuary of God is overthrown. What particularly defines the spirit of evil? It seeks to destroy the ordinances of God. It seeks to destroy the desire of sacrificial life. It seeks to destroy the church. And ultimately, I suppose this is number five, ultimately the spirit of Antichrist exalts himself. This is verse 25. In his own mind, he shall become great. He shall even rise up against the prince of princes. This is, of course, what Satan aimed to do, to rise up in the place of God. This is a temptation offered to Eve and Adam in the garden. You can be like God. And notice how effective it is, how effective it is. It's hard nosed. It's determined. It's bitter. This evil spirit of this little horn. No wonder Daniel, he's overcome at the very end. He's sick. He's appalled by the vision, he says. He, he didn't get all the details. He couldn't, you know, write out a whole dissertation on the matter. But he sees the awfulness of evil. And he is teaching us here one very simple lesson. You and I are to tremble at the evil. The evil we see around us. You and I are to tremble at the reality of evil. I think a lot of people are far more interested in how do I interpret the numbers in this text? How do I interpret uh, what it says about the end? And we'll get to that in a second. A lot of us are far more interested in, in parsing out the little nitty gritty details of a vision and some numbers than we are in trembling as Daniel does at the vision of evil. Just look at his response. He is overwhelmed. He can't get out of bed for several days. He is appalled. And this kind of spirit is all around us. It threatens to be in us, a spirit of antichrist. God is saying, Daniel, he's saying, church, be aware of the dark reality that you were not taken by surprise, that you were able to war in the spirit against these dark powers. Don't be numb to evil. Are you excusing evil? Are you saying, well, you know, everybody does it. It's not, not a big deal. Are we numb to evil today? Perhaps one of the reasons we're numb to evil is that we don't know the spirit of Christ. What's the opposite of the spirit of Antichrist? The spirit of Christ. Are you alive to the spirit of Christ? How do you know if you're alive? So what we read in Galatians, the fruit of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit. You see that increasing in yourself. 
Third lesson. Second lesson, reality of evil. Third lesson, God will sovereignly judge. The reality of God's sovereign judgment. Daniel is told hundreds of years before the events actually occur. He's told hundreds of years before the events occur that God has a time limit on evil. No matter how bad it is, God has a time limit. He has designated the length of this evil. Evil can only go, to put it very simply, evil can only go as far as God permits it. God has permitted a length of time. That's the reason for the number, by the way, in verse 14. 2,300 evenings and mornings. Likely, if you want my opinion on the matter, likely a reference to three and a half years. Sacrifice morning, sacrifice evening. When you would not have that. You would have no morning sacrifice, number one. You would have no evening sacrifice, number two. You would not have that for three and a half years. We see it also in verse 19. Gabriel says, I'll make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, many of us are very self-centered when we read about the end. We think it means our end, that is the end of time. We read the end here, the appointed time of the end, and we think, oh, that must be the end times, or it must mean the end of history. It must mean the second coming of Jesus. No. It's already told you what the end is. 2300 evening in the mornings, three and a half years. It's not the end of history. It's the end of the terrible attacks upon the saints right here and right now. The end of the attacks by the little horn Antiochus Epiphanes. He has an end point. That's the key that the vision's trying to get across to Daniel and to you. God's saying, Daniel, you need to know, my sheep need to know that the success of evil powers is not forever. There is an expiration date on this little horn's rule. I have set its limits. It's in verse 24 that God makes it even more clear. His power shall be great. This bold face, this stern-faced king, his power shall be great, but not by his own. What a lesson there. The powers of darkness cannot get strong by themselves. Do you know that? Evil cannot get strong by itself. Evil is parasitic on God and on good. The great uh, church father, Irenaeus, I think it's one of my quotes I go to a lot, so if you heard it before, sorry. But it's a great quote, so I'll give it to you again. Irenaeus says this. He says... Error never, <laughs> never comes naked. He says error never comes naked as error. It always dresses up as half-truth. It always disguises itself. That is, error and evil is always parasitic on truth and goodness. And the power of this little horn is only great because God permits it, not by his own power. What a comfort in that, that God always has his way of bringing us down, whether it's down in conviction of sin like Saul of Tarsus, or it's down in death like Herod in the book of Acts. And it shows us, doesn't it, one of the great dangers for the Christian, the danger for you 
And the danger for us is that if you think you're strong because you're strong, if you believe you are strong by your own strength, the weakest person is the person in that condition. You are never so vulnerable to the spirit of Antichrist as when you believe you are strong because you think you're strong. This is the example of Uzziah. Remember Uzziah, king of Judah, number 11? Second Chronicles 26, 16. When he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And when he was discovered, Uzziah became furious and was smitten with leprosy. You see, this is the great problem. This is the great problem with promoting one of the fruit of the spirit above the rest. It's very common in our day. I suppose it's always very common. I shouldn't say in our day. It's very common anytime for certain people, often men, but not always, to promote the idea of self-control and discipline. You see it with the athletes. You see it with musicians. The, 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 the fruit of the spirit that is self-control. If that is promoted by itself, what happens? What happens is that you begin to control part of your life. For the glory of self. If you promote one fruit of the spirit apart from all the rest. You are actually serving yourself. This is why the musician who works and practices hours at their drum or at the guitar or at their music. So often you see it on all the all the TV uh, interviews 20 years afterwards. What do they always say? Well, they work so hard at their songs that they sold out. They played the tour and then. They got drunk, and then they had drugs, and then they died, and then they got this. It always happens. It's always the same story. And then the band broke up because they got in fights, because they couldn't handle each other's selfishness. But they were really self-disciplined when it came to music or athletics. Same thing in sports. They were focused on the goal of victory. You see, if you control only part of your life, that's not self-control, that's self-service and therefore self-slavery. Pride can motivate us to have a well-controlled body or a well-controlled schedule or a well-controlled tongue, but only grace produces self-control in all of life. That's the difference, friends. That's the difference. Only grace produces self-control with love, with gentleness, with faithfulness, with all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. They all go together. And that's why this great power of this little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, well, he will fall. He shall be broken, verse 25. How? By no human hand. No human hand will break him. God will break him. Now, here's the great question. I mean, you have this, this mighty vision. You have this great cartoon. What do you do when you hear it? What's the application point that I really have for you? Here's the application point. Be like Daniel. What does Daniel do? Verse 27. I was overcome. I lay sick for some days. Are you sick? Are you ill when you think about the way that evil attacks, the spirit of Antichrist hurts and attacks the church? Are you ill? Are you, have you ever been so sick 
with grief and sorrow at the church, at the state of Jesus Christ, or lack thereof in your own heart? Have you been sick about that before? But notice what else he does. There's, I suppose I can give a whole sermon on that point, but there's another point here. Then I rose and went about the king's business. Daniel has a vision behind history. He has been into heaven. He has seen the future. What do you do when God gives you special spiritual insight? He got up Monday. He got up Tuesday. He got up every other day that week. And he did the same thing he'd been doing. But the Daniel who did those things was different. He did the same thing he had been doing, the king's business. But he had been changed by his encounter with God. This is what the New Testament, if you don't, if you don't believe Daniel, that's what the New Testament tells us. How are you to live? Do your king's business. Do the business of King Jesus. Walk in obedience. Live in holiness. You know, one day, John Wesley, this is a positive John Wesley story, just in case anybody's wondering about those. Uh, one day, John Wesley was writing to a preaching engagement. He was stopped by a stranger, and the stranger asked him that classic Christian question, what, do you, what would you do, John Wesley, if you knew that Jesus was to come back at noon tomorrow? Wesley reached into his bag. He pulled out his diary. He got to the day that it was. He got to the morning of the next day. He handed it over to the guy. He said, that's what I would do. My normal engagements. How could he say that? Because he was already living for the Lord. Because he was already living in the spirit, not of Antichrist, but in the spirit of Christ. Therefore, his, his, his mind, his ways were already stayed upon the Lord. That's why he can hand a schedule and say, whatever I'm doing then is what I'm doing. Because I'm already living for the kingdom. Because I know the future kingdom of God. I know what's going to happen in the future. Therefore I can live for the kingdom now. So here's the great question for you. What do you do when God has revealed. Not Daniel chapter 8. But he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ. What do you do when God has revealed himself to you in Jesus Christ. You go about your business. But you're not the same woman. You're not the same man you once were. You go about your business. You do what you would have done. But you're changed. That's why Peter says. Peter says we have something better than Daniel chapter 8. Peter says we have this prophetic word of God. Now made sure in Jesus Christ. Do you see? How can we not see more clearly now. That our God reigns. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you as the king of kings, the one who is on the throne, the one who knows the future and the past, the one who has ordained our times and our seasons, the one who calls us to live for him, not in the spirit of selfish antichrist, in the spirit of Christ. Strengthen us by your power, not by our own. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.